Welcome to episode two of Creative Story Podcast. It's me, Jess Richards, and I'm here with my dad, Steve Stoddart, and I'm going to have a chat to him about life and um, his creativity, his interests, his career path, and just his general take on stuff, which I think is going to be really interesting. So welcome, Dad. Hi, Jess. Hello. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, Dad, so the first question I have is, can you tell me a bit about your background when you were growing up and your school days? Yeah, school days in Stoke-on-Trent were quite tough, as I remember them. I went to a secondary modern school after not passing my 11 plus, where it was all boys, there were 36 in the class, and we were graded in our peer group by ourselves as to how well could we fight in a punch-up. My grade was 33 out of 36. However, at the age of 13, I did my 13 plus and I was sent to a grammar school, which was an amazing change. I was only 15 in the class and my grading on fighting went from 33 out of 36 to 7th out of 15, <laughs> which says a lot about the socio-economic groups the rest of them came from. Wow, that's so interesting actually to get to get that perspective, isn't it, of like a secondary modern to a grammar school? Because yeah. most people only had one. Like I only had a normal, what I call normal comprehensive school experience. I never got much to compare to that. But what would you say, did that change the opportunities that were available to you by having a grammar school education? Completely. Completely altered the direction of my life. I probably would have become quite a, a wealthy plumber possibly running my own business. But instead, I became a pauper of a secondary school teaching myself. But one last story about the grammar school. In the class, the year group I was in, there was 3A, 3B, 3C and 3D. And then the class I was in, 3T, which seemed a long way down from the first four. And we never really knew what it meant. Eventually, we found, in true grammar school tradition, it stood for three, transfer. It was really like something that had been branded on our heads. We weren't really grammar school pupils. We were kind of just some dregs that had been transferred in to make the numbers up a couple of years after the real ones came along. Wow. That seems, uh, yeah, not not great branding or not, not great labelling. <laughs> so tell me a bit about the subjects you liked, what what were you interested in? Well, I'm 68 at the moment. This is in 2018. And so it was very traditional. Metalwork, woodwork, technical drawing, more or less were the basis of the whole curriculum. Um, and I really liked all of them, um, plus all the regular subjects. Fortunately, we had a geography teacher who, in his part-time his spare time was a member of the magic circle and he managed to make geography rather more interesting than it would normally be chemistry we probably had i think the most boring teacher in the whole of the universe and branded on my memory forever will be the day in which one of my fellow pupils absent-mindedly was playing with a 
a nut, a wing nut, on, on a tap on one of the sinks that were embedded into the wooden bench. And fascinated all of us, we just all wondered what he was doing and the teacher just droned on. And eventually the tap came off the fixture and a jet of water hit the ceiling with great force, showering the boring teacher who went completely berserk and referred the boy to the head teacher for a thrashing. <laughs> and that's a genuine thrashing too. Okay. Wow. And that is school days in Stoke circa, what year would that be? 1963. 1963. Brutal. Okay, so Dad, um, what career advice were you given at school? Well, I do remember going to see the career advice teacher and um, growing up in the 50s and 60s, I'd read a lot of comics about the war and seen films about Spitfire pilots and Lancaster bombers and so on. And I outlined my ambition to the careers advisor uh, as to be joining the RAF and becoming a pilot. To, to which he said that really I shouldn't really try and pursue that because it wasn't for the kind of person that I was to, to go and, along and do that kind of thing. However, I'd done a questionnaire um, <clears throat> prior to this, and from the findings, the mysterious findings that he had divined from the my answers, he suggested that I would make either a very good driving instructor or a teacher, because I was patient, he said, and uh, I had a reasonable manner about me which for some reason precluded me pursuing my dream of becoming a pilot. Um, I didn't become a driving instructor, but I did become a teacher. How odd. <laughs> yeah, I could see you in any of those careers, actually. Pilot, driving instructor. I don't think you ever actually taught me to drive, but that was because I had a checkered history with driving <laughs> lessons. Yeah. <laughs> No, that, but Jess, you left for university before taking up my kind offer <laughs> to teach you to drive. I, I could have saved you a fortune, like yeah. I did with my second daughter, who took up the offer and passed first time at the age of 17. Yeah, basically I messed up and I passed, and I didn't, I didn't learn, I went to university, I didn't learn until I was about 24 in Surrey, and it took about 60 lessons to pass, so yeah, I definitely messed up. Um, but you live and learn. Um, so anyway, uh, going back to the teaching. So, but that career is quite unusual to go into because your parents would have been doing, I imagine, completely different jobs to that, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, I mean, I, I went through. I left school at sixteen and became the understudy to the works engineer um, in a, a local steel foundry, and it quickly became apparent to me that I'd found myself to be in what at the time seemed to be the most boring occupation in the world. The, the guy just left me in an office with some technical drawings to do while he went off to do important work. And I just thought, rightly or wrongly, I can't stand this. When my O-level results came out, surprisingly, unexpectedly I suppose, they were good enough for me to stay on into the sixth form and I'd never expected that to happen. So I took the 
what seemed to be the easiest escape route from this job and decided to go back to school. That left me at 18 with mm, a reduced amount of options. I didn't do well enough to qualify for university entrance. And a friend of mine had been down to London and been accepted for a college of education training to become a teacher. When I asked him how difficult the interview was, he said, God, it was, it was easy. They're, they're desperate for teachers at the moment. You walk into the place. And on that basis, I thought, let's go for it. And sure enough, he was right. They accepted me and set me on my career path of being a teacher. The next section is about what it was like for someone coming from Stoke to London in the 70s. So, Dad, what was it like? Yeah, it was actually in 1968. Um, a, a complete and total culture shock. A shock in so many respects that I can still remember it visit, vi vividly. Absolutely arriving at Euston Station with a suitcase, never having lived away from home before, feeling very much alone, and getting to know a little bit about London. The college I went to happened to be in the King's Road in Chelsea, which, unknown to me, is is, is quite a trendy place to be, particularly in, this, in the um, late 60s. Um, I was overwhelmed by the buildings, the wealth, the museums, the scenery of London, coming from Stoke-on-Trent, which I realised was a very deprived area. I'd never known that before. The powerhouse of the Industrial Revolution, providing coal and steel for industry. The, some of the finest pottery in the, the world. And yet, there was nothing there. So... The seeds of my political awakening were sown, <laughs> never to be changed. <laughs> so that's what, so, so what you're saying is like that experience of the culture shock and difference between London and the North effectively was a catalyst for you Absolutely. in your views. Absolutely. The sense of entitlement in, in London compared to that in the North is even, is, is, is even greater today. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, and what about, so that it was a really interesting time for music at that period, wasn't it? So tell me about what it was like in, in terms of in the King's Road at that time. Well, the King's Road. The first time I walked up the King's Road, um, there was a band popular at the time called the Hollies who were out doing some boutique shopping. Nobody took any notice of them, really, but looking back, you know, they were quite a big deal. And then uh, another time we walked through the gates, there was a lot of noise coming down the road, and there was an open-top bus, and the Who were promoting a, a single called Magic Bus, and they were simply playing it live the whole length of the King's Road on the top of a bus, and it was just, just an amazing experience. Also great to go to free concerts in Hyde Park, the Rolling Stones, um, a group called Blind Faith, which were basically the cream plus Stevie Winwood, for those people who know anything about those names. Um, and of course, London was the centre of the musical revolution. Oh, 
And of course Liverpool too. The Liverpoolian bands. Yep. Wow. So there you were rocking up as a trainee teacher, still really young, um, in London. And, and how did you find somewhere to live and where were you living? Mainly lived in the college, which was easy and cheap. And I didn't realise at the time, wow, we're living in Chelsea in a, in a building between the King's Road and the Fulham Road, 200 yards from Chelsea football ground, 30 yards from a pub if we got tired of the student union bar. Um, so it was wonderful. When when we got kicked out of there, I did have to find somewhere to live and managed to find an awful place in Barons Court just down the road. The train line went past the back of the house, never really got used to that. Um, but at least it wasn't too far away. But with today's prices that would probably be out of the reach of many students today so we were very lucky in that respect the other thing and i don't want to make the youth of today if anybody's listening to this green with envy but i actually got a student grant to go to to college with so you know it was beer and fag money for the first three weeks um before the the grant ran out and then life became a bit harder at least in hall, the meals were provided, so you couldn't spend the money that you should have been spending on food because it was already available, which was probably a lifesaver, really. Mm, that sounds great. Amazing. Free education. Just imagine. I've paid for it since. <laughs> <laughs> so you had studied as a teacher, trained as a teacher in London, and then you had ended up in Manchester, um, through um, having to find a place to work as a teacher and that's where you'd ended up. So you had a few years in Manchester and you you met Mum. So can you talk a bit about what happened next and how you ended up back in London? Well, I only had a year in Manchester because it was my first job in teaching and it was pretty awful. I found that I'd got myself a job in a, an area called Withenshaw, which had been... Um, when the slums in Manchester had been demolished and new council houses were built, Withenshaw is where they were. So it was a tough, tough school. I'd made lots of mistakes. I'd had many a Sunday night in the pub when I shouldn't have done and was too ill to go to work the next morning. Uh, so I had quite a few absences. So I'd already made my mind up to uh, to, to, to depart from the school anyway. But in the meantime... I'd met Barbara, who was in her final year at Manchester University, and had decided to go to London after that to study, um, to become bilingual secretary. And I just said, well, I'll come with you. And um, a chap I was at college with, John Torrey, um, told me that they were looking for a maths teacher in the comprehensive school that he was working at in Dagenham, another wonderful area. Um, and I applied, applied to the job, the school for the job and, and was successful. And then we arrived with Barbara, still a postgrad student, and me. And my take-home pay at that time, after stoppages, was, now listen to this all you millenniums, it was £15 per week. And on that money, we had to eat, travel and rent somewhere. Managed to find a tiny bedsit basement 
room in Earl's Court. You know, the ones with the bars over the windows and no daylight coming in. And that was £7 a week at the time, which was basically half my take-home pay. Yeah, which is not that unusual to what it's like renting now, because, you know, at times I've definitely spent half my salary on rent but you were getting £15 a week but could you buy a house for £75 at that time or <laughs> I, I have no idea about house prices at that time because it was so far removed from my aspirations but obviously um, where I came from in Stoke-on-Trent the property was much cheaper uh, but I don't think in London it was anything like it is now. It, they, the prices in London were normal, particularly in, in the less desirable places. They were affordable for, for working people. And there were plenty. In fact, a friend of ours bought a house in East Ham for, I think it was £7,500, terraced house, tiny house. But that was, you know, that was attainable at the time on a teacher's basic money. Wow. <laughs> so, Dad, um, after you had um, been with Mum in London for a while and proposed famously in the handsome cab in Earl's Court when you were drunk, um, you got married. Um, <laughs> what, how old were you when you got married? 24. 24. Wow. Uh, so, so you then settled in Stoke again um, after a few years was that? Yeah just after we got married we had to make a decision whether to stay in London uh, or move uh, up to Stoke where my mum was on her own and uh, struggling a little bit and possibly a turning point in our lives and possibly financially a mistake we did move back to Stoke and bought a house there rather than stay in London and probably stretch ourselves at the time um, but if we'd done that and bought a house there then possibly financially our, our lives would have been quite different uh, but with regard to interests and activities to refer back to my time at the grammar school uh, we were very lucky to have a form teacher who was a fanatical outdoor person and Stoke-on-Trent had this small place just outside the city um, a lake and some tents where schools could go for a weekend, but hardly any of the schools took took up the opportunity. So our form teacher, who was a single man, took every spare weekend and we learnt, and I was one of the people that would regularly go and learn to sail, canoe, climb, and so on. Uh, and that gave me a love for life of the mountains and so on yeah you're quite adventurous when you were younger or, or like well now still but I, all, what I remember growing up some things about you I sort of think think of you as being a bit rebellious in a way because when I was growing up I remember stuff like you did used to smoke quite a bit for a while didn't you you had a motorbike uh you you did rock climbing and so talk a bit about your adventure hobbies well, point of information here, Jessica, I never smoked when you were born, after you were born. <laughs> Before you were born, I did. Quite a lot. 
for quite a long time? Well, uh, yeah, yes. Yeah, I was very silly in my youth and, and started to smoke cigarettes. And then, of course, it's an addiction and it takes a while to get off it. But I did do that. So you kicked the habit when, when you had children. Yeah. But you had the motorbikes, didn't you? Because I remember I've got a picture when I'm about five sitting on my dad's motorbike. And talk about the bikes. You've always had bikes and in, in, in motorbikes and other bikes, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, a lot of things in those days were down to uh, financial necessity. So get, stopping smoking, it was costing too much. Uh, cycling to school, to work and so on. Uh, again, it was cheap and easy, but I never regret cycling. I, I've always enjoyed it and I still do. Motorcycling was a kind of... Uh, a little bit of a hobby as well. Uh, rock climbing died out when I, when we had children. Not before I'd knocked my front teeth out rock climbing, actually. Um, but again, I, it led to a wonderful uh, experience of visiting Chamonix in France with the, uh, the idea to climb Mont Blanc, which didn't happen because the other chap who was going to do it with me and his girlfriend dropped out at the last moment. So myself and my girlfriend at the time went. But we had a lovely holiday and, and saw a great deal of France that was an absolute revelation to me at the time. Yeah, so tell me, I remember one story about um, potholing, when you were potholing as a teacher, and uh, something to do with... Uh, the rope. Can you can you remind me that story? Well, myself and again, a friend John Torrey took a group of, of, of boys to an outdoor activity centre in near Hayonwai, and uh, it was an advanced course in the summer holidays for the very best of the pupils who'd shone on their individual school courses. And to commemorate this high-level course. The Outdoor Activity Centre drafted in some ex-army instructors who, to be honest, were complete and utter lunatics to a man, subjecting us, the boys and the staff, the teachers, to some incredible experiences. The potholing adventure was... Uh, it was extreme potholing done with school children and two inexperienced staff. It culminated with the, at the end of the, the trip through the ground, through what's called a sump, where it's an underground swim, come pull yourself along on a rope for a, a section of underground caving filled with water. And I, being the member of staff, was the last man to be left standing the other side. <clears throat> Unbeknown to me, the, the ex-army instructor the other side said to the boys, let's give Mr Stoddart a bit of a treat. Give him plenty of slack rope, he's waiting the other side for a tug to tell him to come, and we'll run up the cave together and, all, and propel Mr Stoddart through. Meanwhile, unsuspectingly, on the other side of the sump, I decided to light a cigarette up, since all the boys had gone, and I'd just inhaled on it when I was suddenly dragged at high speed, through an underwater sump with my helmet banging against the, the roof of this thing, my lungs full of smoke, and I came up the other side a few seconds later, like a beached whale, covered in tobacco, coughing like a 
a dog, much <laughs> to the amusement of the ex-army man and all the boys. It was, it was great fun, they thought. A time before health and safety. So, Dad, you went on to have a long career in teaching um, and you were doing that job in a number of different um, guises. So you, you had taught... Um, I remember you teaching me maths when I was growing up. You had been a design and technology teacher, woodwork. You then moved into IT. So what are your overall reflections on teaching? Well, as a classroom teacher, a foot soldier, as it were, it was hard work, but rewarding in many ways and uh, a responsible and important job, I think, to be done. Um, not particularly... Uh, well rewarded I don't think but uh, looking back I'm pleased and proud to have been a teacher and uh, ironically just at the end of my time I went to work in a pupil referral unit where children who'd been thrown out of schools for behaviour or whatever problems were sent to and I worked with groups of three and four pupils which was very good because I could identify the, the problems and ways to help them and tailor schemes of work to 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 bring them on and to improve their self-esteem and the way they looked at other people and so on. And it was the most rewarding time of my time spent in teaching, I think. Yeah, I remember that. Um, and you're really making a real difference there, aren't you? Because these are people who've been expelled from the school system. So if they presumably didn't get help, they would just sort of drop off, um, you know, not, not really have the same prospects. So how was the, the pupil referral unit helping them? Well, I think as well as them having behavioural problems, the school system had actually failed them because the school system wasn't catering for their, for their needs, which, to be fair, they can't do when there's people with very disparate needs. Um, but we could, and we didn't have to conform to the national curriculum, which meant we weren't tied to the conventional subjects in the separate school at the time, although I believe this has changed now. Uh, we were able to do all kinds of activities, outdoor activities, welding, wood turning, uh, things that hands-on activities that boys in particular enjoyed there were, more, there were there were more boys there than girls obviously for for many reasons but um yeah we were able to expand the horizons i think of in 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 many ways which we couldn't do in a conventional secondary school so we were able to help them to, you know i think in a, in a very productive way and would you recommend teaching as a profession for someone to go into today? I'm not sure I would, actually. The actual level of admin and the, the, the sheer intensity of it is very demanding. And I think you've got to... It's a young person's job. It's, uh, it's high energy is required. And as you get older, it becomes more difficult to stay in touch with young people and create the, um, the, you know, the amount of energy required to, to, to get them to engage with you. So um, I possibly wouldn't highly recommend it. 
which is good advice um, come from an experienced source. Um, <laughs> and so, Dad, like overall, looking at your path and what kind of led you to where you are now, um, retired, um, what do you have any words of wisdom? Like, what things have you learnt? I've learnt it's very useful to have a, a pension of sorts to pay the bills. It seems a silly thing to say, but I was never very well off as a teacher, but as, as a retired person, we can pay all our bills and have a bit left over. So that, that's, that's important, and I never, ever thought about it while I was at work. I never had to. I was very lucky. The teacher's pension scheme was ticking away in the background automatically. But if you haven't, if you haven't really thought about it, then do make provision. It is so important. Practical advice. Mm, yeah, good tip and uh, something that we all need to think about. <laughs> all right, well, thanks, Dad. It's been really nice to chat. Um, we've covered a lot of topics and also you've chosen some great music. So we'll play out on another one of your picks. <laughs> Thank you.